Hi, everyone. I'm Samira Daswani. I'm the host of the podcast, The Patient from Hell. We are Manta Cares, a global community of caregivers and survivors of cancer. Thank you for tuning in yet again for our episode today. We have Dr. Don Dizon on our podcast today, who is going to be talking to us a lot about sexual health, survivorship, caring for the LGBTQ community, et cetera. He is a renowned oncologist working out of the U.S. Uh, hi, Dr. Dazan. Welcome to our podcast. I'm good. I believe you are short on time, so we're going to get right into it today. Um, so I'd love for you to tell us a bit about how you came to found the Sexual Health First Responder Program. Right. Um, you know, it goes back to when I was in fellowship at Sloan Kettering. Um, I decided during that time that I would be a cancer specialist in the gynecologic cancers um, uh, uh, division. But I also had a strong interest in breast oncology as well, where we see patients, at least in New York City when I was there, we saw patients on the same floor as our gynecology colleagues. And part of that program in gynecology was sexual health. And so I had, as part of my training, I was working alongside uh, these specialists who were not oncologists. They were gynecologists and psychologists, and they were seeing and evaluating people who had issues with their sex lives. And when I left Sloan Kettering, it was... Uh, shocking to me that this was not a service that is common. Uh, the first hospital I worked at, despite it being a women's cancers program, had no such program. And I opted to uh, do some extra training as a sex, uh, sexual education counselor and then started a program there and uh, moved then to Mass General, where they also didn't have a program, even though there wasn't across the street in Boston at the Dana-Farber. So we started a program there. And then when I was recruited back to Brown, um, where I am currently, uh, we also didn't have a program. So that's really what led it. So I, you know, in total, I've, I've started three different uh, programs in sexual health within medical oncology and also helped start a couple of programs, at least in Boston, in bone marrow transplant as well as in radiation oncology because i do think it's an issue that you know a lot of people still cannot access even though they really should be able to can you talk to us a little bit more about what the issues are that you see and why and why you decided mm -hmm. to start it so it doesn't exist but what is the medical problem there why doesn't it exist why haven't well, you gotten access there right i mean i you know it's just a very sensitive topic and it shouldn't be um, for anyone who's gotten chemotherapy, for example, we, you know, we ask very um, private questions when you come in for a routine follow-up. We ask about, are you having any vomiting? Do you have any diarrhea? You know, um, you know, has hair fallen out? And even in the most private places, we really want to know. And our exams are always very in, in, um, invasive or intrusive, one could say. Yet, uh, there is this heightened concern that sexual health is so private and so intimate that providers are not comfortable bringing it up and patients are embarrassed to bring it up, uh, especially if they don't feel the questions are going to be welcomed. Um, you know, and it's not that providers are blinded to this, but for a very long time, especially, you know, dating back 10 and 20 years ago, there was this sense that, um, you know, people should be happy just to be alive because they had cancer and survived it. And that 
gratitude almost should, you know, come before anything else. Since I've been practicing, for example, you know, we are still uh, advocating for fertility conversations, you know, in the United States, but globally, that anyone of uh, reproductive age be offered the chance to preserve fertility. Um, and we're still not getting to a point where the vast majority are getting that counseling. Um, and I think for a lot of folks, talking about fertility meant they also talked about sexuality. And I am frequently speaking on the topic saying, just because you covered pregnancy doesn't mean you covered sexual health. So I think it's because it's, you know, some people feel like you're opening Pandora's box. Other people, you know, other people think, you know, uh, this is a not a married person or this is a real old person or this is a widow or all sorts of excuses to believe, to help them believe that sex is not a problem. Thank you for sharing that. Um, you may have to correct me on my uh, memory here, but if I remember my stats right, it's what, 50 to 90% of survivors have some sort of issue with sexual health after cancer treatment? Right. And it really depends on how you ask the question, you know, um, because there's an issue, you know, there's there are folks who will have a physical problem, but not be bothered by it. But then there is also going to be the person whose sexual difficulties is a source of distress. And that's really the group of people we want to help. I see. I see. So can I maybe ask, just unpacking that a little bit, you spend a lot of time, if I, if I understand your bio and your work, on the LGBTQ community as well, and ensuring that care is tailored to that community. So there's survivorship in the heterosexual community with sexual distress, but there's also tailoring care for this previously marginalized group as well. So I'd love to hear a bit more about your work on that side as well. Right. You know, you know, these are only related insofar as that, you know, sexual uh, orientation is something that is really, you know, at the heart of, uh, of sexuality. You know, we want, we are attracted to who are, who we are attracted to, but the issues regarding um, sexual and gender minoritized people is far more complicated than their sexuality themselves. Oftentimes, this is a community that has experienced hostility, if not outright trauma, at the hands of a medical community. Um, in fact, it's much, the, the, the evidence supports that the experience in medicine is much more hostile for transgender individuals than it is for LGBT or LGB individuals. But other, you know, compared to a, a more heterosexual population or cisgendered population. This is a group of people who, you know, have been stigmatized by healthcare. And so coming into cancer, cancer prevention, even cancer therapy is a difficult thing, especially when you think about how multidisciplinary management of cancer is. This might be a group who has a primary care doctor who they feel very comfortable with, who they go to for absolutely everything. But that primary care doc is now in a position of needing to refer outside of that sort of safer space. Um, and, you know, there are issues about disclosing your sexual orientation, disclosing your gender, disclosing your pronouns. And it never stops. It could be to the, you know, friend administrative staff, to the surgeon, to the medical oncologist, to the medical assistant, to the radiation oncologist. 
And so there's this, these slights and there's these risks of being depersonalized or even humiliated that I think is, is a very big barrier um, that cancer providers need to be aware of. And Dr. Zizan, how are you going about addressing it? Because I feel as though you do so much work in it that's providing care to that community, but I also think you're very vocal on social media. You're leveraging these platforms that are fairly global in their reach. How, how did you come to use those platforms to get this education or nudges or uh, stories out there in the community? You know, I think it was like three or four years ago now, I was actually asked to speak about LGBTQ disparities in cancer care. Um, before then, I, you know, I had actually written a paper about ovarian cancer in a transgender individual. And I've written about the experience of caring for that person where I mischaracterized his wife as the one with ovarian cancer and not him. Um, you know, this spawned into some work with advocacy organizations about how to approach or include trans individuals when they talk about ovarian cancer. And, you know, it was a very simple message. If you're born with ovaries, then you can get ovarian cancer. It has nothing to do with sort of gender. And then I think it helped because where the breast cancer community were taking us, where for a very long time, you know, breast cancer was a, a pink ribbon, a very feminine cancer. But we realize very much that men get breast cancer, you know, and it, it's, it's heterosexual cis men who get breast cancer. Um, and these were men who were, um, you know, historically not included in those in clinical trials. Um, so that led the way towards, you know, sort of breaking the association between organ or, or gender and cancer, because, you know, men are not the only people who get prostate cancer. You know, trans women actually get prostate cancer as well. But if you don't include them in your outreach, this is a group who may never get screened for prostate cancer, who may develop, a, you know, aggressive prostate cancer, who may ultimately die of prostate cancer. I, I love the inside of... Uh separating gender, I'm guessing identity, and then organ, so like biological organ as well. I think that's a really core concept that actually has come out in our podcast. I think it's really powerful. I may share a story with you. We have another guest who's on our podcast. We've recorded it. I don't think it's gone public yet, um, where he's sitting in India. He's an AYA patient. Uh, he just came out to his community, and then he is going through an incurable brain cancer. So we were talking about the kind of triumvirate of uh, isolation <laughs> that happens in his case because the AYA community, previously marginalized, kind of still an outlier. He's a identified gay individual in India, also very, I think, difficult, still a nascent community, still nascent conversations. And then the incurable cancer community, where it's not the same as early stage breast cancer. It's not the same as a curable cancer where there is a quote-unquote end uh, in sight. I say quote-unquote because <laughs> that's highly debatable, but I think that I, I'd love to get your sense on how, how, from your lens, that patient going through this very complicated journey and experience of not just your medical care changing, your identity being questioned, you're navigating 
this cultural phenomena that's unfolding for you sort of in tandem with your medical care? I'd love your sort of thoughts on that as well. Well, I mean, I think it is difficult, but it's, you know, really hard to um, sort of come up with a quick answer. You know, that person who's undergoing treatment and is facing a prognosis with metastatic brain cancer is a, you know, is a multifaceted individual. You know, that person may be more interested in symptom control more than anything else, in which case they may find affinity in the metastatic brain tumor group. But they also may, may want to see people that look like them, that are like them, who are going through this experience because of the threats that metastatic brain cancer has had on people's sexual health, you know, their ability to experience sensuality, their experience of desire, and if they're single, their ability to even meet a partner. And that can be a very isolating experience that they will not likely get in a metastatic brain uh, tumor support group where the vast majority are older, are not the same um, uh, gender, or are not, adults share the same sexual orientation. And that that's a whole, I think, in a lot of places, including in the United States. Um, and then, you know, I think it's also a matter of making sure that that community supporting that individual is prioritized because here in the United States, we do value um, non-traditional relationships. Gay marriage is legal in the United States. You know, um, uh, uh, partners, whether legal or not, are valued, but that may not be the case everywhere, um, but it needs to be. I, I definitely agree with that. I'd love your take on the role of the oncologist and medical oncologist in kind of the experience we're talking about, because that's where I truly struggle, because so much of what we just discussed is personal to the individual, the cultural community, the contacts, the life. But then there's also this, like, the medical oncologist plays such a big role in the experiences we go through. So I'd love your take yeah. on that. Right. I mean, I think it's what makes cancer care so multifaceted today that there's not one person who can who can really um, manage all the aspects of cancer care. And I, by that, I mean, you know, whole person cancer care. It really brings in the importance of having a team approach, whether that's a, a nurse navigator or a lay navigator who can partner with your medical oncologist and also take that patient through to resources that are that may be on either side. Um, I think where the medical oncologist uh, plays a role, no matter what the setting is, is just to number one, to really validate concerns, legitimate issues as being important if they are especially important to the person. And then it's our job to steer them towards the resources, whether that's in our own offices, towards, you know, a psychosocial program, or it's to really utilize what's available within our communities and where they are not available to point them towards resources that are, that are accessible, whether through in the internet, through um, the various patient communities that exist on the web, social media, 
or even just good websites for education. Oh, I appreciate that. It's almost like the medical oncologist is playing the role of a Sherpa almost. It's like, here's the path, here's the guide. You can't provide everything, but... Yeah, and I think that's correct. I mean, we're we're not we there's no no way that we're going to know how to manage every issue. But what we don't want to do is may take it to a point where the issues are not addressed at all. I I really appreciate that. Um I'm going to take us back into a slightly different path. One is overall survivorship. I'd love for you to talk a bit more about overall survivorship. The issues you've seen, misconceptions you've seen, Given kind of your many, many years of experience, how has that space evolved? Well, I, I think the you know, um, contemporary survivorship really was brought forward by leaders in our field, including Jimmy Holland and Patty Gantz. Jimmy Holland really focusing on the psychosocial health of people, and then Patty Gantz really bringing survivorship as as a true discipline in oncology. But what they did was really identify the issue that things still matter after cancer is treated. And we had, they had identified gaps in care that, you know, people treated for cancer were, were not getting screened for other malignancies or were not getting flu vaccines, were not um, accessing preventative care. And it might have been really due to a lack of collaboration that a medical oncologist felt the primary care doc was going to do all this, but the primary care doc who hadn't seen this person in seven months, perhaps, didn't know the patient was out of therapy. So, you know, that really, you know, brought forward survivorship care, but the emphasis, unfortunately, was placed on curative intent treatment, that survivors were falling through the cracks after cancer therapy and their health may suffer because they're no longer, um, they may not be dealing with their cancer primarily, but their health suffering because of access to care. That was an unintentional, um, but it did do a great disservice, I think, in terms of um, who consider themselves a survivor. So your patients who are diagnosed with advanced rheumatoid disease or are living with recurrence, they didn't see themselves in this conversation, even though they may be interested in healthy lifestyles, smoking cessation, sexual health, um, even fertility and parenthood may be issues that they are interested in. But those were relegated to curative people with curative cancers rather than higher risk, recurrent, metastatic, or advanced. And I think we are now trying to go back and make that term of survivor really true to what was the original intent, which was you become a survivor after you're diagnosed with cancer and you stay a survivor for the rest of your life. And I'd love to unpack that a little bit more, Dr. Dazon, just partly because uh, I, I sort of, I'm a, I am a patient from curative intent and the whole post end of treatment, and I say end of treatment again in air quotes because I have hormone positive cancer, you're now in like 10 years hormone therapy. So what, what is the true end? Is it at the end? Is it, there's a lot of kind of complexity there. So ignoring all that kind of complexity, the piece of like falling through the cracks feels so real. Where my medical oncologists, I love them. Don't get me wrong. I'm really good friends with them. I've driven them nuts. Hence the name of the podcast. 
Um, I cannot hear you. Um, the I still fall through the cracks. I'm not, and I understand what's happening because they are dealing with active patients. They have this like fire drill mode almost where they have these patients that are actively going through treatment. I'm a still a patient in their roster, but in their stack rank of patients, I'm doing really well, right? So it's almost compared to their baseline, I'm doing great. Compared to my baseline, I'm doing terrible. So it just depends on, I, I sort of fall through the cracks still. And this is not a me problem. I'm not trying to get that. But what I'm trying to get at is even the curative setting, is the medical oncologist really the right Sherpa still for post end of treatment? Or is it the primary care doc? Or is it both? Like who who is my Sherpa now? Well, I mean, the data really is very clear that a primary care doc can take over the care of someone who's no longer on active chemotherapy, who's on endocrine treatment and is doing quite stably. The issue, I don't think, is where the science is taking us, but there's a relationship between medical oncologists and their patients that is very difficult to walk away from for a lot of people. So, you know, I can honestly say when I've said you can follow up with your primary care doc, it almost feels like severing a relationship. And it's a quite an unsettling thing. But the data is very clear that primary care docs will pick up issues and complications related to cancer care, but also will pick up recurrences with the same frequency as medical oncologists who are doing that follow-up as well. Very interesting. I never thought yeah. of it that way, but I really appreciate you sharing that. So from yeah. a patient lens, it's almost like you need to be ready for a breakup. Well, I think you need to be... You need to explore who is going to be the uh, who of your providers is going to be most able to meet your needs. That's what I'd say. You know, so if this is a person, if you are a person who, uh, you know, who's you know dealing with a lot of fear of cancer recurrence, maybe you know you're worried about symptoms even as they come up. You're worried about complications related to COVID. You know, and, you know, you do want a chest x-ray if you develop a cough or you have questions about a vaccine. You know, you're right that some medical oncologists will not be as accessible to you. But, you know, your primary care doc may have that team that might be more able to. And you can express a preference as to who's going to do your follow-up. That is that is well within your rights as an engaged patient to do. Very interesting. I, I never really realized that. And then how does that change if you're not in the curative intent setting, but you are in the kind of metastatic setting or maintained remission setting? So where, where how does that shift? Well, I mean, I think if you're in, if you're living with recurrent advanced or metastatic cancers, then I think the, the, the follow-up is different. You're, you're off, you know, you're more likely to be seen more frequently from your medical oncologist and the staff are likely to, you know, you're, you're never leaving our cancer land, for example, you know, and we're going to watch you with the same care as someone who is just being diagnosed and is under active treatment. So I think it is different. Interesting. So for, I'm going to switch a little bit to caregivers because one of the main audiences that our community serves is the caregiver. So in your experience, given everything we've spoken about, and we've touched a lot of things so far, we've spoken about sexual health, 
the LGBTQ community, the role of gender identity, biological organs, uh, survivorship and how that changes, who the Sherpa is. What have you seen on the caregiver side? Yeah, you know, I, there's still not a great deal of services available for caregivers. I think it's an unmet need in a lot of places. Um, we do know that caregivers have uh, psychological trauma from a cancer treatment uh, plant. Give me one second. Just one sec. Sorry, I'm sharing my room with my 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 daughter. Um, so caregivers, you know, I think are an unmet need in most cancer programs. I think, you know, the resources that we have just are not adequate to 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 help them. But I, you know, I think there's a big uh, understanding that they do need help. You know, one of the things that I um, regret still is that if someone dies of their cancer. Um, I never get to see their their loved ones again. It, it's, a, it's a very abrupt discontinuation of care that may have been important for them and, and, you know, in a lot of ways was important to me as well. So there are a lot of relationships end when a person with cancer dies. Um, but, you know, for people treated for curative intent, for people who are doing great, um, the experience is almost, you know, the experience is unique for someone who supported that person with cancer. And I see that a lot in the sexual health world where, you know, if someone was very sick undergoing treatment for cancer, that spouse, that loved one, that boyfriend or girlfriend, you know, was really a caregiver, meaning they were there to take care of someone who was sick. And sometimes making that transition back to intimate partner from caregiver can be a very difficult thing to do. Can I go back to your Sherpa analogy here? Because this is something that we uh, we spend a lot of time on Medicare is talking about, which is what role does the Sherpa, the medical oncologist, play in helping the caregiver find resources? Because it, I, it's not clear to me. I was just saying, it's not clear to me that there is a role there or it's been defined in any way. But no, I don't think it has been. You know, I think research is looking at um, how we can help the caregivers, but it's still through the lens of if we can help the caregivers, will that impact the the outcomes in the person with cancer? Rather than looking at what can we do to the caregiver for the caregiver's own health as the end point. So, you know... There's, there's, you know, that um, lens, I think, in oncology that, you know, I still would like to question because I think, you know, people who live through the cancer experience have, have needs and, and uh, we're not meeting them. Um, but the medical oncologist, again, with his team, you know, has to be able to point caregivers towards resources. Maybe it's working with social work or social services to provide community-based resources for caregivers. I mean, the one thing I don't think we should do is say, this is not my problem um, and you need to go elsewhere. 
that's that I think would be the shame. I, I really appreciate that insight. Um, I'm looking at our clock and I'm going to do a quick summary and I'm going to ask you one sort of wrap, like end of podcast wrapping question, okay? So my summary though is in our podcast today, we've covered a whole host of, I think, really complicated topics in a sort of rapid fire way, but we will link to some of the resources that I know you've written about um, if you're comfortable with it. But we've covered things, thank you. We've covered things like, caring for the LGBTQ community. We've covered sexual health and both during treatment, but also as a survivor. We've covered the role of the medical oncologist, uh, both during treatment, the, the Sherpa sort of guiding you to the many sort of facets of the cancer experience, but also after treatment and how that changes if you're in the curative intense setting, advanced recurrent or metastatic settings, and how that is slightly different and the patient's Expectations should also be slightly different, depending on which path you're in. And then we've touched upon the very, very nascent stage and field of caregivers for cancer patients and the sort of vast unmet needs that exist today. As my wrap-up question for you, sir, is you're on this mission. I've seen some of your work. It's incredible to me that you've managed to have the impact you've had so far. But if you had no constraints and you could achieve your wildest dreams, what would the world look like? <laughs> well, I mean, I think it would be looking, applying the same lens of complexity to cancer as we do to the rest of the world. You know, cancer is not one disease. There are multiple diseases. Some of them will be amenable to early detection. Others are going to be very difficult for that purpose. But, you know, to live where we see and accept that cancer can be prevented, can be cured, but even not accomplishing either, that cancer is something one can live with. I think that, to me, is what success looks like. So let me maybe restate that for you, because I think it's pretty, pretty incredible that you just said that. It's making sure that cancer is something that you can actually live with, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate you coming on this podcast. And I know that our listeners are going to love listening to this story. So thank you for sharing your story. Thank you so much. And good luck with your grant. Thank you. <laughs> this podcast, show notes, and newsletter is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or any materials linked from this blog is at the user's own risk. The content here is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.